I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel. And this will be the ninth chapter. It's been a couple of weeks since we've studied John together. Last year talking about the new year before it got here. And the week before that talking about Christmas from perspective of Luke. But today we're back in John's Gospel. And uh, we'll be saying a lot more about this chapter next week when we have uh, the time to do it. But there's one aspect of this passage that I think will be fitting for our communion service and uh, perhaps give us another angle to look at communion that we, we do four times a year. It, it's a familiar thing. It can become old hat, and uh, that, would not be, um, that would not be good. So to look at this from a different, fresh perspective is always uh, worth our time and our effort. But let me begin reading for you from chapter 9. We'll read through about verse 7. We'll ask for some help to understand it and then uh, make a few notes. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word preserved for us by eyewitnesses. Lord, this was written so that we might believe, John tells us. So I ask that you give us faith, that you'd even help our unbelief, as the man said to you in response to your asking him to believe. Lord, uh, may we be the student, may you be the teacher, and may you be pleased in all that's said and done. We ask this in your name. Amen. One of the qualities of John's gospel that tends to separate it from the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that John spends a large part of his gospel um, analyzing the one-on-one -on -one connections between individuals. The other gospel authors do this as well, but not to the same extent. John's tendency is to dig in a bit deeper on the one-on-ones, which it's very fascinating to me. We're reading about the man who claims to be the Son of God. I would be interested in how he interacts with those he created and what he says to them and what they say to him and what happens as a result of it and whether or not they buy what he's saying or they reject it or the others as they're watching, whether they buy it or they reject it. So there's a lot said here, and the entire chapter 9 is given over to this unnamed man who we just read was born blind. Uh, no other gospel includes the miracle. John's the only one that tells us about this one. 
And it's the only time where we see Jesus healing a congenial problem. Congenial means that it was there at birth. And um, that might be interesting, maybe not. But just to think that all the other miracles that involve healing someone's body is actually fixing something that broke down in their body, right? Where in this case, he's fixing something that never worked to begin with. Might even be uh, better categorized as an act of creation rather than restoration. And again, we'll talk about some of those things next week. Uh, the story opens with Jesus being asked by his disciples, whom was at fault for this man's problem? And in all probability, uh, and we're guessing here because it's not said, uh, that these men probably recognize him. Maybe that's the purpose for not giving a name or any more specifics. But most folks that were blind or lame positioned themselves between the temple and people going to the temple because as a requirement of the law to give alms, uh, it works out good for you if you need charity to get in between a person who's on his way to the temple and needs to give some charity. So likely, these people were well known. These were people that they saw each week, if not every day, perhaps. And uh, it's likely that the disciples knew him, even if by name. So the disciples ask, simple question, who's Whose fault is this? And they give two suggestions. Uh, as it would seem, they expect the answer to come from one of two places. Either this is his parents' fault or it's his fault, which is kind of interesting. Um, because the, forget the fact that we're reading something 2,000 years old from a culture we have very little in common with. That doesn't seem to be where we would start asking questions. If we want to know, well, how did this happen? The last place we would probably go is to say, well, was this his parents' fault or was it his fault? And that's probably the strangest of the two. I mean, just try that on for a moment. Um, you receive uh, news that someone you know has, has had a, a baby or another baby. You go to make a visit and you, you realize uh, right off something's not right. Um, the last thing in the world you would do is ask that out loud. And the last thing you'd probably do is list those as options. Now, is that right there your fault? Or was it this child's fault before they were ever born? As if there's such a thing as sins committed in utero. Which actually, some of the rabbinic traditions... Uh, thought perhaps might be possible. They got one written in there, and this is not scripture, this is added traditions from Judaism, that uh, a woman could walk into a pagan shrine carrying a child in her womb, and the child be held responsible for it. And we look at things like that and go, uh, no way. But this was the default mindset of Judaistic thinking, that disease and suffering was as a result of sin. Sin equals suffering and ultimately death, that there's no death apart from sin. And when you put it that way, theologically, we trace all this sin back to what happened in the Garden of Eden anyway. But to put the question to Jesus this way uh, makes us want to stop and think about it for a minute. 
And here's where I wonder, and uh, we're at a loss here because we can't see the nonverbals on the face of the disciples. They hear their tone of voice. But I'm wondering if perhaps they're asking this question isn't as typical of grade grubbing as we see the Pharisees do so often. Or like Peter when he's saying, you know, I got this problem, I need to forgive somebody, how much should I do that? Seven times, which he thought would get him an A plus and maybe a gold star. And then he's told, no, why don't you do seven times seven? As if you just keep forgiving them until you've forgotten about it. You just keep forgiving. Well, in this case, I don't know if the disciples are looking at this man as a theological curiosity, kind of like a riddle they want to solve. You know, help us out, rabbi, teacher. Um, This one's a tough case. He's born this way. So whose fault is it? Is it that? Or maybe are they looking at this man as a sufferer they feel compassion for and wondering, well, good grief. A life sentence of blindness is a, is a tough thing to bear if it's not even your fault. Or what could you possibly do in the womb that would warrant that same sentence? I don't know which direction they're going from here. And um, perhaps we'll never know until we ask them face to face. But thinking our way through it, the question still remains to Jesus, which is it? And... Um, I don't know if there's any other direction we could look at. Even if we look at it from our own modern culture, we do hear often enough the question asked about how much responsibility does a parent have for the misbehavior of their children. Whenever we've got someone that's not an adult who does a very adult crime and we don't know what to do with them, there's court proceedings. It's always discussed. Well, Does the parents have any, or do the parents have any responsibility? Well, this is opposite even of that. The idea might be, well, the parent did it, he's paying. So which is it, Jesus? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? And what does Jesus say? He says, neither one. Which is interesting. And uh, there's enough tucked away in that, uh, again, theologically, that it'd be safer for us to pause for a minute because he's going to tell us in the next line the specific reason for it but he has said it has nothing to do with his sin or his parents sin so some might want to just go ahead and color the rest of the bible up with this one thing that said and say so sickness isn't a result of sin well if we interpret scripture with scripture which is what we're supposed to do as good students of the bible we've got plenty of places in scripture where specific Um, sickness or disease or even death was a direct result tied directly to a a sin go back to your understanding of the Old Testament remember Miriam who's Aaron's brother who unjustly spoke out against Moses having to do with his wife and she got leprosy on the spot now later got that cleared up after uh, things were worked out but it you read that and wow. And they didn't even have to wait for it. To, it miraculously appeared. There was uh, the servant Gehazi, assisting prophet. And uh, he doubled back and took a reward that was offered for being cured of leprosy. 
only to find out he got the, rep the leprosy of the man that was cured for breaking the commandments of the prophet at the time. Got Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying to the church about how much they were giving. Um, we've got lots of cases here. You could go on and on. What about Uzzah? Ark of the Covenant, a cart over a rock. Looks like the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off and hit the ground. So he touches it to stabilize it and drops dead. That was a rule. No one ever, except the Levite with the right poles. Like, good grief, we've got capital punishment for good Samaritans. Isn't there room there for technicality of sorts? So we have very severe, strict cases. All the way up to capital punishment for sins that God has clearly given us in his word. But then on the other hand... You've got passages of Scripture that flatly deny that sickness is an absolute result of sin. That it can be, but not always. You've got Paul's description of the thorn of, of in his flesh that wasn't because of wrongdoing, but God had a purpose in it. Uh, you've got um, passages describing a sickness not unto death that Jesus would talk about. What about the book of Job? another case and then if you want the case for all cases what about Jesus Christ who never sinned in his whole life but took on the suffering of the entire planet was purposefully sent to this world to be crushed by his father to pour out his full wrath on the curse of sin so his son would take it instead of us so the Bible's got both sides of this and I didn't even mention the passage that we typically use for communion, where Paul says, if you do this wrong, as if it's nothing, when it's very much something, there are people who are sick, there are people who are asleep. Is he saying that if you do this here wrong today, you might not survive it? No. Maybe yes. 2,000 years between. Anyone up for tempting the Lord just to see if he can make lightning strike? I don't think so. The point of all this is that God knows the difference between these two. And for most of the record, he's not telling. But in this one case, he actually does. Which was why I think this is such an intriguing passage. He actually tells us why a man is born blind. He sweeps away the idea of sin on the part of that man or his parents. But he tells us. So just to make sure we've got all our ducks in a row. Sickness or suffering, pain or disability, you fill in the blank, can be connected to sin. And in so many cases, simply through the natural repercussions of our own bad decisions, we bring a lot of that stuff on ourselves. A lot of Americans say, well, I just don't feel good, I'm tired. Well, we eat garbage and we never exercise. That's just basically the American sedentary lifestyle. I don't think our bodies are equipped for that. There's that. And then there's also the idea that it would be true to say that the Bible teaches in one sense all sufferings connected back to the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that since then nothing has worked as God has intended for it to work. Nothing's good like it once was, and that there continues to be a great deal of collateral damage 
as a result of mankind's fall from grace. This is where we have to be careful. We do. As Westerners, as Americans, because our mindset's totally different than 2,000 years ago with these Easterners in Judaism. With them, everything was explained spiritually. Uh, if you have a bad day, that's your fault spiritually. Uh, if you're poor, well, it's because somebody messed up, probably you. Sick, dead, all this. But the way we tend to look at things is the opposite of that. If there's a problem, it's probably a materialistic error in the system somehow, somewhere. Even with our bodies, a genetic anomaly. We've got people now figuring out how to cut the pieces of DNA up and put them back together in order to correct certain things in our bodies and give people who are trying to conceive a statistically more likely probability that their child will be healthy rather than unhealthy. So we look at it, we think, well, if somebody's sick, well, they randomly caught a germ or they were around somebody they shouldn't have been around that had the germ. They coughed in their face. But that's the reason. Or if there's a birth, and it even sounds bad to say defect, doesn't it? Birth defect. Well, it's a genetic anomaly. Anomaly. It's, it's coming apart. So which is it? Is everything explained materialistically or everything's explained materialist or spiritually? We got places in scripture that say it can be both. Which is it? For the most part, God isn't telling. And again, this is why I like this one. We've already determined it hasn't been uh, said by Jesus that it's because of the sin of this man or his parents. And he's got the, the room in here to say if he wants to that it's collateral damage all the way back from the fall. But look at verse 3. We'll find out. Jesus answered, it was not that, on the one hand, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the reason that the man is blind and from birth is not having to do with his parents or his sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some of you might have thought, oh goody, we're going to get to find out something from the mind of God that's useful and helpful and maybe we'll wind up making me better or richer or healthier. What we've got here is a case of purposed pain dealt out by the Creator that's manifest in the life of his creation and not for his good but for God's glory and that's a very adult lesson isn't it I don't know that, that that'd be the one I'd carry to children's church with me listen up kids this God who made you might decide that it's in his best interest and yours that you suffer in life And not as a result of an accident, but purposefully. This tells us that it couldn't have been an accident. 
How, how in the, I, I think, to be honest with the scripture, that it, it just doesn't fit the way it's put together. Greek, the context, the way John writes, or any of this, for Jesus to say, oh, uh, this is one of those cases where my enterprising father decides that he's going to capitalize on uh, this maverick molecule in his great universe that actually statistically put this guy, and he just happened to be the 978,000th born in this thread of the genetic stuff that we made anyway, and it just happened that he was born blind, but we'll make good out of it somehow, some way. I'm exaggerating and being a smart aleck here on purpose. I don't think that's the way it works. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that he or the works of God might be displayed in him. So this is where we'll leave it for today. We'll, we'll untangle the rest of it next week. But as far as communion and as far as what we're supposed to think about this, Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's been very clear through John's gospel so far. But what we're learning through each of these miracles is that he not only came to take away the sin of the world, which is made up of all the sin deposits in every man, woman, and child, stored up against God on their personal account as they're personally responsible for these sins. But he came here to remove the symptoms as well. That's what he's saying when he gets into this business right after he said, it was neither one of those. And we must be busy because I've only got a certain amount of time that, that God's son submitted himself to this, a watch, a, a lifetime and uh, an appointment with a cross. And, and it's going to be dark. We've got light now. I'm the light of the world. We must be working. And what are we going to do today? We're going to restore sight or create sight for someone who was born without sight. What do you, does that fit the gospel? All born in sin and blind to the truth of God until he gives us sight and eyes to see? Sounds like it, but for this man, physically, he's going to wash mud out of his eyes, made out of spit, which is going to break the law of the Sabbath in a way he hadn't broken it before. And he's really going to upset the Pharisees by doing that. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath. Jesus spit and then made mud out of it. Just kind of like putting mud in the eye of the Pharisees who said you can't do it, right? Um, that again is next week. But he came as the Lamb of the world to take away the sin of the world and its symptoms along with its pain. And what we've got to trust the Lord with a verse like this because there's nothing else to do with a verse like this than to trust the Lord with it. And that says a lot. That if God in his goodness chooses to permit those effects of sin to remain in our lives, it's for his purpose, for our good and for his glory. We opened up this morning in prayer with the 119th Psalm that we studied a week ago. Lord, you are good and you do good. And then about three verses later, before I was afflicted, I didn't learn like I do. But through the affliction, I know you better. It's a tough thing. It's a grown-up conversation. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
I brought with me something, and I don't usually do this, but for some of you this might be helpful. And this is a journal from my mother-in-law. This is Corey's mother, Becky. And she's with the Lord now. And uh, this is the journal that she started keeping after she knew she was sick and couldn't get better. And this is dated November of 2014. Most of this is her writing down things that she read that encouraged her. Even things she would admit she didn't quite understand at the moment. But this is something that she wrote down from Alan Redpath. I'm not familiar with him, but there's several entries, things that he had said. And here's what she wrote. There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has come past God and past His Son, right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose. I don't want to believe that anybody's cancer is an accident. You say, how could you say something so hateful? It's got to be an accident. Who in the world could see fit to let that be allowed to be anyone's fault or purpose? I'd rather it be an accident. I'd have rather serve a God that knows about it. And came to do away with it. But not until it's brought me and him closer together. And for some that doesn't make sense. For others it makes all the sense in the world. But she considered it a privilege. And the weaker my wife's mother got physically, the stronger she became spiritually. And it was something that I won't forget. And others of you could come and say and share from journals the same way. But as we transition into communion, here's the thing that I think might be helpful to think through. If we're going to remember what Jesus Christ did for us, the Lamb of God who came to this earth to take away the sin of the world, how's He going to do it? And how would He go about removing all the mess that sin brought with it? And if he's the healer, the miracle worker, the savior, the substitute, the sacrifice, what's it going to cost him to get the job done? There's little clues along the narrative, like when uh, the woman with the issue of blood had enough faith to reach out and touch the hem of his garment, and it seemed to, to start a controversy. He stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples say, good grief, there's a whole crowd. How in the world would you know anybody touched you at all? And he says, I felt the virtue go out of me. Almost sounds kind of spooky, the virtue go out of him. It's a trade. How else does substitution work? He's going to take it. And it, it, we kept, keep reading, he's going to take this man's blindness. Not that he turns blind as a result of it, but... He's going to heal it. He's a creator. He made this place to start with. If the story is true. But he's going to take it upon himself. Take it to the cross. 
and pay for it once for all so we can go back to the garden, back to what God originally said, this is good. That's the story of the Bible as we know it. So those of us who call him Lord and Savior are going to do what he asks us to do and remember him through communion. We do this quarterly. But before we do that and as we prepare and our ushers and deacons get ready to join me on the platform, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for difficult passages to try to understand. And Lord, it's going to take faith to believe a story like this, to trust you, blindly though it may feel, especially in situations where our own skin is involved, where we hurt, where we feel wronged. But Lord, if you are good and you do good, then somehow our affliction fits. So Lord, as we prepare to remember you, like you ask us to remember you, we ask that you search our hearts for any unconfessed sin that would make what we're about to do useless, if not offensive to you. Lord, we thank you so much for confession and for verses that tell us if we're faithful to confess, you'll forgive us of our sins. Lord, we ask that you help us not worry about things we've confessed once they've been confessed, but to truly leave them in your hands. Lord, if you can save our souls, you can forgive our sin account. Lord, help us to keep them short. Shorten them up today, right now. That you would help us clean out our mind and our heart, prepare us for communion. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.